Amen. You may be seated. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are going to be this morning. And uh, we've been going through this series called What We Believe. Uh, we spent the first few weeks talking uh, about really the, the Trinity and, and looking at the Father, the Son. And last week we looked at the Holy Spirit. And uh, this morning, uh, we're moving into a little bit more of a conversation about, over the next few weeks, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? Now, I know I'm talking to a room full of maybe those that have already made a decision like that to follow Jesus and become a Christian, but I think these things are important uh, for us to be reminded of. Um, Paul often told churches when he was writing to them, to remember the gospel, to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus, right? And, and so here's the thing, um, there's, a, there's a story in John chapter 3, John chapter 3, uh, where Jesus encounters this man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, um, he's very high up. Um, he, later, we find out in the gospel of John, uh, same Nicodemus who actually helps um, pay for Jesus' tomb. Right? So he's a, he's a wealthy, well-known, kind of high up there religious leader for the Jewish people. And so Jesus and Nicodemus begin to have this conversation about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? And Jesus tells them that you must be born again from spirit, from water. And Nicodemus is very confused by this. He doesn't fully understand. He's like, how does that supposed to work? But Jesus continued to emphasize to him, you must be born again. Part of becoming a new Christian is that you, that you experience the new birth that is through Jesus. And so, in the same way, I want us to kind of talk through that question. We're going to use Ephesians chapter 2, but we're going to be asking the question this morning, what must I do to be saved? And I think this is a question we all right, want to know. Nobody, nobody wants to sign up and say that I'm, I like being lost. Anybody like the feeling of being lost? Isn't it the worst feeling, like when you're trying to get somewhere? It doesn't happen as much anymore because we've got, you know, cell phones with the map on our phone. But man, I remember when I first started driving, learning how to drive, I, I, I didn't have that. Okay, I'm old enough to remember a time where you didn't just have a map on your phone. And uh, I, getting lost was just the worst, right? Because you would have to do really uncomfortable things like stop at a gas station and ask for directions. Anybody ever do that? Just me. Okay, again, it must just be a pastor problem. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that got lost. But right, you'd have to go in. You'd have to actually... This, this, this freaks out more when I would talk to teenagers when I was a youth pastor. The idea of walking in and talking to another human being was like, hey man, like I, that sounds like the beginning of a horror movie to me. Okay, I don't think I want anything to do with that. But we don't like being lost. We don't like the feeling of being lost. Every one of us would say, yeah, I want to know what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be found in Jesus, what does it look like? And so if you're there with me in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read verses 1 through 10 this morning. Here's what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, 
as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us. Jesus, we pray that as we open your word, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to be able to understand what it is that you are saying to us through this text. I pray that you would use me and speak through me and as I communicate your word this morning. Jesus, we love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. So Ephesians chapter 2 is, is an incredible passage. It just really lays out the basics of the gospel. And Paul starts out by saying this, and here's point number one this morning if you're taking notes. The first thing that we see is that we were all dead. We were all dead. That's the first thing Paul says, and you. Now notice, who's he talking to? He's talking to, um, obviously, believers in Ephesus. That's where this letter was written to, believers in Ephesus. And so he's telling these Christians, hey, you're saved right now, right? Like you, you're now found in Christ. You've been made new in Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus. But there was a point where you were dead. You were lost in your trespasses and your sins in which you previously lived. Paul wants to remind us of this. I think this is important for us to be reminded of too. No, no matter how long you've been a Christian, it's important to understand that there was a point where you were not, right? Like there was a point where you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespassing. Now let's unpack here what Paul's talking about. The first thing he says, like I said, you're dead. Like if you're dead, you, you can't do anything, right? Like you can't do anything, you can't help yourself. Right? If, if you, you know, I, I, I drive into Ada the other day and saw a dead deer on the side of the road. That deer's not getting up anytime soon and going anywhere. It's, it's dead. It's going to need something outside of itself, right, to miraculously bring that thing back to life. It's, it's, it's gone. When we think about being dead in our sins and our trespasses, Paul wants us to see this picture that there was a point where we were completely lost and we were completely hopeless. We had no ability on our own to follow Jesus. We had no ability on our own to make a way to be righteous on our own accord because we were dead. And he says, what, we were, what were you dead in? You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Think of that idea of trespassing, right? It's to go somewhere that you're not supposed to go, right? It, it's, to, it's to kind of go outside of what's been the, the marked boundaries in order for you to to go trespassing, when we trespass in God's mind, we go where we're not supposed to, and often we may take what we're not supposed to take. We see this in the very beginning, right, in the garden. God gives Adam and Eve very clear commands. You may eat from any tree in the garden except this one. And what do they do? They go and they take, they trespass, they go against God's will and God's standard. The idea of sin comes from this Greek word, harmatia, which means to literally miss the mark, to miss 
the mark. Um, I think it's bow hunting season right now. I'm not a hunter. Okay, I'm not going to pretend to be one. Uh, but I have shot a bow and arrow, and I, 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 about like a year ago, my pastor at the previous church, they were out back. We, Waterloo was kind of out in the country, so don't worry. This wasn't in the middle of Edmund, us shooting like this, you know, arrows at people or anything. But we're back there, and he's like, hey, Steve, you want to shoot this bow? And I'm thinking like, yeah, how hard can it be, right? Well, I, you know, rear back and fling one like way past the target, right? I mean, it doesn't even hit the big hell bay, uh, bay, uh, hell of bay? What, I can't even say that word. I'm going to say, John of Blank, thank you. So it, it doesn't even hit the big hay bale there. It just completely flies right over it. I mean, like by almost a mile, like to the point that I thought, I think I might have killed somebody. I don't know. Like I need to, I need to go find out and check because that thing went way in the opposite direction it's supposed to go. This idea of sin is this idea that we've missed the mark. We've come up short of God's will. Because if we believe that God's the one who created the heavens and the earth, then God has created it to operate in such a way, according to his will, according to his law, according to his rules. And here's the thing, as we see in that story of Adam and Eve, sometimes we go, man, is it really fair for us to just get, you know, for, for, for all these consequences of Adam and Eve to follow, follow on us? But when we think about it, we make the same decision that Adam and Eve made, sometimes daily, weekly. Their decision was, I don't care about God's will, I'm going to do my own will. I don't care what God says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to build my own kingdom instead of furthering the kingdom that God had given them to rule and to reign over in the beginning. And here's the thing, is just like their decisions, there was disastrous consequences. Humanity, right, falls into sin. I mean, like we see it, like as soon as they get out of the garden, you have one of their, two of their kids, one murders the other. Like there's automatically consequences to their sins, and that consequence is death. The relationship between God and man has been severed. The relationship between human beings is altered in a terrible, terrible way. There's conflict between God and man. There's conflict between man and his fellow man. There's conflict We've seen that all throughout human history. There's something really wrong with our condition and our nature because of sin. Because sin has marred us. And here's what Paul wants these believers to know. He's like, listen, all of you have sinned. All of you have fallen short of God's glory. All right, that's what Romans 3.23 says. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. You are all dead in your trespasses. And Paul gives a couple markers of like our condition. He says, first, you used to walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the air, the spirit now at work in those that are disobedient. What Paul wants us to understand is that there, there used to be a way that you lived. You used to walk according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the air. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the devil. He's talking about the enemy. Paul says in another letter in Colossians chapter 1 that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. We've been rescued into the, the kingdom of the Son that He loves. Here's the thing is, before Jesus, we were influenced not by the Holy Spirit, but by the enemy. Not by the kingdom of God, but by the kingdom of darkness. That's, that's what we were influenced by. Remember last week we read Ephesians chapter five together, and Paul tells them, hey, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What Paul is reminding them here in Ephesians chapter 2 is there was a point where you were under the influence of something that was the enemy. 
And that enemy led you astray. Your understanding of God was darkened. Your mind was darkened. Your spirit and your soul were darkened and marred by sin. Before Jesus, that's the influence we were under. And Paul says, you used to live among them. And what is another marker of that? Not only were you, did you walk according to them, but what that typically looked like is carrying out every inclination of our flesh and thoughts. In other words, you did whatever you wanted to do and you lived however you wanted to live, repeating the same sins of Adam and Eve over and over and over again. Whatever sounds good, whatever feels good, I'm going to do and I'm going to live in that vein. And now Paul's saying, now because you're in Jesus... You've now been made alive in Him. Here's point number two. Point number two. We are all loved by God. We are all loved by God. This is a pretty bleak beginning to chapter two. Like if you're just reading this like letter from Paul for the first time, you know, you're reading like you were dead in your trespasses of sin, which you previously lived according to the ways of the court and the ruler there. We too previously lived among them. You're like, okay, Paul, we get it, right? Like we're like, yeah, we, we lived in sin. We were doomed. We were dead. This seems pretty bleak. Do you have any good news for us? What does he say in verse 4? But God. I, I mean, probably one of the more powerful just two words in all Scripture. But God. God, who is what? Rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ. Paul goes on to say that you've been saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works that no man may boast. But God, you were in a, you and I were in a sinful, fallen, dead position. We couldn't help ourselves. There was no hope for us to be able to help ourselves. And what Paul wants to paint this picture when he talks about, when we talk about salvation is to understand that the only way that this situation in our lives is remedied is by Jesus stepping in on our behalf. And why does he do this? Does he do this because you and I are just really awesome, great people? Does he do this because we live perfect, good, moral lives? That's not what the passage says. The passage says he's rich in mercy because of his great love for us. Rich in mercy because of his great love for us. Made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. Like even though you and I were far away from God. Even though we were choosing to do our own will and our own way and our own thing. And build our own little kingdom. Jesus because of his great love for us. Because he was rich in mercy. Came and lived a perfect life in our place. Died a death in our place that you and I deserve to give us life that we don't deserve. That idea of being rich in mercy is this idea that God is just, he's just overflowing with mercy. Just overflowing with it. I, I mean, think of somebody that's really wealthy. I'm not talking like, I don't know, like, like normal wealthy, like you make six figures. I'm talking like Elon Musk level wealthy, right? Um, Jeff Bezos level wealthy. I'm, I'm just going to go on a limb and say, you know, when we have conversations, when you probably have conversations around the dinner table and you're talking about buying something, usually the question is, do you think we can afford that? Do we have enough money to do that, right? Everybody, I mean, every, I think all of us, no matter where you're at, we've had that conversation. Here's who I don't think is having that conversation, is Elon Musk. I don't think Elon Musk ever goes, do you think I have enough money to buy that island? 
ah, whatever, just go buy it, right? Why? Because he's not afraid of running out of money. There's no end, it doesn't seem, to the wealth that he's accumulated. Now, on a much grander and greater scale, the picture that Paul's trying to paint is God isn't going to run out of grace and mercy for us and forgiveness of sin anytime soon. He's rich in it. He literally overflows. He has an overabundance of it to give to us and to display and to show to us. Our lives are meant to be lived in this reflection of this incredible grace. That's what he says in verse 7, so that in coming ages, he might display this immeasurable richness of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? He's like, literally your life as believers is to show off God's richness in mercy and grace. That, that's, that's how your life should be lived. Not in a self-righteous way, not in a way that I've earned this or I've done this all on my own, but in a way that the only reason that I'm able to stand before a holy God is because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. And Paul really wants to emphasize there in verse 8 through 9, listen, you've been saved by what? By works? No. By grace. Through faith. This is not from yourselves, and it is God's gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. You've been saved by grace through faith. What does this mean? Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. This faith is an acknowledgement of our sin and asking Jesus' forgiveness for our sin. Asking for the Holy Spirit to live in us and to renew us and to redeem us like only He can. But this isn't something that you've done or earned on your own. This is a gift that's only from God. Here's the good news of that. If you're taking notes, you write this down. There's no amount of good works or bad works that we can do to earn God's love for us or to make God love us any less than He does right now. If you're in this room and you're like, man, I don't know, I've got a laundry list of things, like you're just one turn away from experiencing the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus. That's good news. And it's good news not just one time. It's good news every day. Because I don't know if you know this, but let me let you in on a little secret, okay? Maybe this is, again, maybe it's just a pastor problem. But um, even after you become a Christian, you still sin, right? Yeah? No? And you guys fill me in. What's y'all's secret? Man, I didn't realize the glorification process had already happened. There we go. But, but here's the thing. We still sin. We still mess up. We're still human beings. We still make mistakes. We're not perfect. We find ourselves in places we shouldn't be. We find ourselves saying things that we shouldn't say. We find ourselves in sin. And the good news is that no matter how far we feel like we've fallen, Jesus is, not, Jesus is saying, just, hey, just, just turn around and just start moving back towards me. Just turn around and receive this forgiveness and this mercy that I'm overflowing with and will never run out on your life. It's good news. It's important to understand on the flip side of that too, because sometimes we, we, we have this idea when it comes to salvation that maybe I can earn it on my own. Right? I can earn it on my own if I do enough good works, if I do enough good things, if I check enough boxes. But, but here's the, the reality we see from Scripture. Again, is there's no amount of good works that you and I can do to earn this love. There's no amount of good works that we can do to earn this salvation. There's just not. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness, 
is like filthy rags before God's sight. That seems a little harsh, right? But what does that mean? That means on your best day, in God's sight, it's still pretty bad, even on your best day. Now, why is that? Now, I've used this example before. I'm going to use it again, and hopefully it helps connect some dots. But the standard by which our lives are judged is, is whose standard? It's, it's, it's God's standard. It's God's holiness. It's His perfection. That's, that's what our lives are judged by. How do we measure up to that, right? That doesn't make us like a bad person. Maybe that to, to everybody else. Sometimes we hear that and be like, well, I'm a pretty good person. You might be a pretty good person. But the reality is you're not being judged according to the person next to you. That's not the standard you're being judged by. God is measuring you against his own standard, which is perfect and holy. The only standard worthy to be measured against. Now, I've used the example before, but if you took a basketball player from here, right? Here in Allen, Oklahoma, really good basketball player, maybe the greatest that's ever played at Allen High School. Maybe you took them up to a big school up in Tulsa or Oklahoma City or some 6A school. They might actually still be pretty good. They might actually make the team up there. They might lead the team in scoring. I don't know. They might be really good. You go take them, and you go take them to a D1 school. You can fill in the blank. I won't pick one for you, okay? So, but you, you take them to a really good D1 school, and maybe they're still pretty good, but they're not good enough to, to get in the starting lineup. They're good enough to come off the bench, but that's about it. Now, take that same kid and put him in front of Michael Jordan in his prime. Guess what that kid's going to look like? He's going to look like the worst basketball player that's ever played. Does that mean he's bad at basketball? No, he could probably beat all of us in here, or she. Put a she in there, sorry. They could beat any one of us in here. The, what changed? The standard changed by which that person's greatness has been measured. They were really good when they were playing Stonewall, right? But when they played against Michael Jordan, it was like they didn't even look like they knew how to play basketball. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm using that example is for us to see that when we're measuring our own goodness, sometimes we do it against other people. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And you may very well be right. But the bad news is, that's not the standard by which the creator of the universe is judging you by. He's judging you by a perfect, holy standard that you and I can never live up to. And here's the good news about that, is God knows that and sends his son to live a perfect life in our place, to, to live a life that we couldn't, to live a perfect life that we were unable to live and die a death that you and I deserved so that we may have life and we may have forgiveness through Jesus. God knew we couldn't live up to the standard, so he sends his son who he knew could. He sends his son who he knew could live a perfect life. And here's the good news is now you are created anew in the image of Jesus. And when God sees you, he doesn't see your mistake or failure or sin but he sees the perfect image of his son being reflected back into him because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection and now because of the Holy Spirit that lives in you, making you into a new creation. Here's point number three, and then we're, this is the last point. We'll begin to wrap up. Because of all this, we are justified because of Jesus. We are justified because of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, we are now made holy and righteous in God's sight. Our sin no longer has consequence over us. Now we've received the free gift of life because of Jesus. There's this process, right? And it gets, maybe you've heard it before, I might have mentioned it before, but 
But salvation, we sometimes kind of look at as like a one-time thing. Like you pray a prayer and then you just kind of do whatever you want the rest of your life and then you go home to heaven whenever you die. There's a moment where we're justified in our faith, that we're justified in Jesus. But there's also a process of that called sanctification. And we're going to talk about that here in a couple of weeks. And glorification. There's a, there's a point where now that the Holy Spirit lives within us, which is great and good news, we've been, we're being made new. The only problem is we still have a sinful fleshly nature that's also there battling with the, the, the new nature that's within us. And so we have to live this rest of our life walking through this process of sanctification, of growing in our faith. But the first part of that, and then there will be a day where we'll be in heaven and we'll be, there will be no sin, no death, no suffering, and that will be a great, glorious, awesome, incredible day. But right now we're in this process that we've been justified for, before God. Our sins are no longer held against us. But now we're walking through this process of growing more and more into the image of His Son. You have been made new. If you have trusted in Jesus, you've been made new, and you are continuing to be made new in the image of Jesus. And here's the, the good news of that, is nothing can, can take that away because it's not based on your works. You can't lose your salvation because of when you, when you sin and when you mess up. There's nothing that can take that salvation from you. In the same way that you weren't saved because of your works, you can't lose your salvation because of your works. Now, I would just throw a caveat in there and say that there, there are those that maybe pray that prayer and they live the next 20 or 30 or 40 years with no regard for the things of God. And, and I would, I would, I can't judge that person's heart or soul, but I would really question if the Holy Spirit has really taken root in your life if you are truly saved. But the reality is, when we're walking and growing in our faith, no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we mess up and we stumble, we, can't, we, we don't have to go back and try to re-earn that salvation because it's not based on our works. It's based on God being rich in mercy, rich in kindness, rich in grace towards us. So, as we close... First question would be, have you received that grace and mercy? Have you been saved? Has there been a point where you've acknowledged your sins? You've asked Jesus for his forgiveness. Like you, you've, you've made that decision. Has there been a point where you've done that? If not, I would love for you to come down front and walk through that decision with you. If you have made that decision, how, how is your life in response to this richness and grace and mercy that we see from Jesus? Are you growing closer to Christ? We're, like I said, we're going to talk about this more in a couple weeks about this sanctification process, but are you growing closer to Jesus? Are you striving to know Him more? Are there markers in your life where you can see, no, I'm not perfect, but I certainly am progressing more and more every day closer to Jesus. Sometimes for some people, that's a really fast, right? Like maybe a sprint. For others, sometimes, we find ourselves where it is like a snail's pace, right? Like we might feel like we're just barely dragged along, but it, is, there a, is there a progression in your life, growing closer to Jesus? What should fuel that and what should drive that is, again, is God's richness and kindness and grace toward 
us. And this is good news. This is good news that we should be reminded of day in and day out. Whether you've been a Christian for five years or 50 years, the good news of the gospel still continues to stand that Jesus loves you, not based on anything good or bad about you, but he loves you based on his love and richness and kindness that he has for us, demonstrated on the cross. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a time of response together.